source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding So, Judges 19. These last three chapters form the great climax of what you could call the demonstration of the Canaanization of Israel, that is, Israel becoming like Canaan. Israel was supposed to take over Canaan and establish the worship of Yahweh. But as we saw in the very last section, when the Danites conquered Laish, they did it in order to establish pagan worship. And as one commentator said, this is not... Israel taking over Canaan, this is Canaan taking over Israel, even though it was the actual physical defeat of a city and the overtaking of that city. It was simply being engulfed by Canaanite worship. So it's the antithesis, the opposite of what, of the extending of the kingdom of God. And this this passage at the end that's framed beginning in verse 1. In those days there was no king. And then at the end there was no king. At the very end of this section, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this section is framed by that. Everything you see in here and the permutation of sin left and right. They're just no good guys. They're just everything is evil and it's chaotic immorality and wickedness that almost makes you numb. And this is to show what happens when we do what is right in our eyes. When we call our own shots, so to speak, when we decide, I refuse the will of God, this is where we end up. So this is the uh, final demonstration of this. And you'll see where the small family breakdown finally engulfs the whole of the nation so that when one starts doing what's right in his own eyes, there's no limit to what it could do to destroy. No limit to how much it could affect. The gossip between two people can end up tearing a church to pieces. It's happened. It will happen again. Beginning words in a relationship that aren't healed and dealt with can can end up growing and finally destroying that relationship, that family even. So this is begins with the little campfire that ends up in a forest uh, conflagration. That's what happens in these three chapters. We're just going to deal with chapter 19, but that's where this is headed. <clears throat> now... I want to make a comment about the fact that nobody is named in this passage. In fact, you don't hear a name until later when a priest is named. But why is it, 
what's the point of the uh, narrator? First of all, is to show that the Levite that acts this way, man, any Levite might have done this. Or the way these people mistreated the guest, any city might have done this. That any guest might have been treated this way. Any woman might have been horribly treated in this way. So this anonymous use uh, so that nobody has a name, it's to underscore the fact as he ends this section, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here's just a sample of it. This is not unique. This is typical for what happened. The other point of no names is to underscore the dehumanization of these people. Interestingly, when everyone does, when one does what's right in his own eyes, individuals become nothing. That's the point. Individuals get wiped out. So it's the disintegration of the value of a person that deconstructs the significance and identity of people, denies individuality and humanity. The community doesn't name them and doesn't recognize their worth. That's typical when you commit yourself to do what is right in your eyes. Others lose their value. So that's why everyone is nameless here. So, it begins with this certain Levite dwelling in the hill country of Ephraim. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, Concubine is considered a secondary wife. The... In connection with everything else that happens in this chapter, it indicates that he took her for his own selfish reasons. And uh, the likelihood is that she was uh, used for sex primarily. And so she is, uh, as we, as this unfolds, we, we realize that she's just an instrument in his hands and has no real value. And this uh, phrase, when it says she was unfaithful to him, this is a difficult phrase. It's unique in the whole of the Bible. And if you see other versions like the Greek version, other versions like that, they have different descriptions of it based some on maybe interpreting the word differently than we see it in our text. One is that she became angry at him. Another, that she despised him. This was a Jewish writing that described it in this way. Uh, And even if it says, if if you take it to mean unfaithful, it probably means in the light of what happened and how he went after her and tried to win her back, uh, it may mean that she abandoned him because of his abuse, abandoned him because of his mistreatment of her. Because no woman who just left a husband could be accepted anywhere, including her own father's house, unless something terribly had gone wrong. And so the indication that would describe this as she abandoned the relationship. She, it's a metaphor for, for uh, leaving him. One, uh, one, uh, two, a couple of commentators even show that the preposition here, uh, instead of saying she was a harlot to him, that she was a harlot for him that perhaps she augmented the income in this way. 
Not only did he have her for his own purposes, but farmed her out to others for their purposes as well. Which does seem to explain some of what happened later and how he treated her. So she leaves, uh, abandons the relationship, but the indication that is that it's his fault. She didn't leave without provocation. Uh, also, the question is, why didn't he come after her immediately? That's an unanswered question. He rose, waited four months. Perhaps the money ran down by then. Who knows? But after four months, he arose to went after her. And notice he's not coming. He doesn't come in the, process, in the stance of demanding from her. He comes in the stance, as it says, to speak kindly to her. Literally, to speak to her heart. That's important to know that the word heart is used here. To speak to her heart, to win her, to bring her back. This is the seeming indication of what he's going to do. Perhaps it's his what he thinks he should do or might do to get her back. But as things unfold, you wonder even why he was going to do that. What was his ultimate purpose in getting her back? He knows what he has to do to win her. You know, like a husband, no, I know, well, need to bring flowers, you know, need to be nice for a few days, need to say all the right things so I can manipulate and get, and women do that as well, of course. I'm going to do this and this and this, not let him really know what's going on, but get him to do what I want. So, but this, this idea of speaking kindly, we start looking for, well, okay, when is he going to speak kindly to her? When is he going to speak to her heart? Let, let's look for that as we go. But apparently, this, uh, the relationship was not so destroyed that when he showed up, they were just running away from him or rejecting him. She was glad to see him. She was glad to see him probably because this gave some evidence that maybe he wants to start this relationship over again. Maybe he wants to reconcile. Maybe he wants to fix things. And her father was happy as well. As it says, he comes out with joy to meet her. So there's an indication of hopefulness right here that maybe there would be a restoration of the relationship. And they spent the next three days uh, partying, more or less. Now, as it unfolds, you'll see that it's really him and the father-in-law getting together. And the, the, the terminology in verse 6 and verse 8 talking about how they were together is the same terminology of Abraham and Isaac going up on the mountain. And it was underscoring, there they were, the two of them. Just the two of them going up there. And that's the idea here. Just the two of them. So she's excluded. She's pushed away. She's, she's not really being regarded here. And so if you're looking for when he's going to talk to her, you don't see it. There is no conversation with her. There are no words spoken to her. And apparently, though, the father uh, hopes that there will be a better success of the relationship, if he, a uh, better success of their marriage, if he builds a stronger personal relationship with him. And he wants to restore her to social and economic uh, stability. And at the same time, he, he may have this personal interest of, hey, he's a Levite, you know. It's always good to know a Levite. Always good to be friends with a Levite. The superstition of, of a Levite uh, during this period uh, and the social standing of 
you know, having us a Levite son. I mean, this was pretty cool. You know, he's come back and, and I can regain my social standing and, and likely my relationship, a greater relationship with whatever deities up there if this Levite's hanging out with me. And so he seems even more interested in that than he does his daughter in particular. However, it's interesting how he speaks again and again about the man's heart. And uh, uh, commentator Lapsley is the first to note this, and it's picked up by several other commentators. This is mentioned four times as he says, uh, verse 6, strengthen your heart, or verse 5. In verse uh, 6, it it says, let your heart be merry. And again in verse 8, heart. And again in verse 9, the word heart. Um, so at each time, it seems to be that he's kind of bringing up this idea. In fact, the literary device here of, hey, that thing about the heart, you're going to you going to talk about that? You're going to deal with her heart? You're going to, you know, speak to her? And it seems to be even the way he's, the reason he's keeping him because he recognizes that things aren't really reconciled here. That, that the relationship seems to be on the same footing as when he got there. And we're looking as well for any kind of recognition on the part of the husband to his secondary wife. Where, where's the concern? Where's the, the love for her. When is he going to speak to her? And so after three days, he, he's up to leave on the fourth day, and he convinces him to hang out a little longer today, and then by the end of the day, stay and spend the night. Same thing on the fifth day, and uh, stay a little while longer. But then as the day begins to wane somewhat, uh, the, the Levite says, enough, i got to get out of here. And so he leaves. And... Uh, it says in verse 10, he rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem, indicating he finally just was impatient. He got up and he got out. But we see the father-in-law seems desperate in his hospitality, uh, seems desperate to see something happen here and not to leave until uh, this is fixed. But he, in the end, apparently is just hoping for the best. And... In verse 12, it's ironic that he says, we can't turn into this foreign city, which Jerusalem was at that time. Uh, You learn about this from chapter 1 of of Judges. So it still belonged to the Jebusites, which were Canaanites. And the irony of his saying, we can't stay here. This is a Canaanite city. I mean, we might be brutalized. We might be hurt here. These are Canaanites. we got to go find an Israelite town. What a bitter irony. And it underscores, you see, by, by this happening, that Gibeah had become a Canaanite town. That was no different than if they had gone to a Canaanite town. Then they get there. They're in the open square. Verse 15. Nobody took them into his house. So this is an appalling lack of hospitality, which was a huge uh, deal in this uh, society and especially among the Jews. So it was a horrible thing that he's just left out. Nobody cares about him. Nobody's taking them in. Already we, the red light is going on. The, uh, what's, what's happening here that, that he would not be taken in. And so this old man that, man that comes along, he's not even from Gibeah, right? He's from the hill country of Ephraim. And he was just living in Gibeah. And uh, he meets them and talks with them, and you get a little feel for the 
Levite's concern about himself because in verse 15, uh, it says that, uh, the, the narrator says, no one took them into his house to spend the night. But when the Levite describes it in verse 18, he says, no one has taken me into his house. The subtle way the narrator is pointing out that everything's about the Levite. Everything's focused on him and his concerns. We'll see this pattern in his uh, communication. Again, the concubine, his secondary wife, is pushed to the edges. He even says, describes her as, says, look, uh, verse 19, we've got straw to feed for our donkeys, bread and wine for me and your female servant. Now, if a woman's offering herself to someone like Ruth does in chapter 3, verse 9 of Ruth, uh, to Boaz, your servant, she says, using this word, or as Hannah says to God in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, your servant, or as Abigail, if you know that story with Abigail and David, Abigail used the term four or five times speaking to David about being your servant. But if it's third person, you don't have the right to say, this servant. You're just calling her a servant girl. So at this point, she ceases to be his wife effectively. And he is saying, and your servant here will, will help you. Uh, at, at, at his honor is gained at her expense. It's kind of the difference in if we had visitors come to our house for me to say, let me help you or to say, Kay will help you or to say, Kay, help them, you know. Listen, we would hear about that one later, right? <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> so he's, he's victimizing her and he's distancing himself from her. Then this time of celebration that begins in verse uh, 22. The, at first, the, the old man seems to be the consummate host, uh, the good Samaritan, so to speak, uh, doing everything uh, necessary for their comfort. And verse 22 actually recalls the way he and the father-in-law made their hearts merry earlier. But as well, it kind of reminds us that all during that time, he never did say anything to his wife. He never did speak to her heart. He never had any regard for her. He never noticed her, did anything. It was in total ignorance, uh, total neglect of her. And so... There shouldn't be any surprise as to what follows. These men surround the house demanding him. Demanding him. And the master comes out and says, don't do this. And then offers in the most terrible way his own daughter. And then, apparently, feels free to offer the concubine as well, which... As you read, these men refuse and say they will not have that. And in his words, offering them, he says to, you may violate them, or some translations, ravish, or some translations, use them. A couple of translations say, you can abuse them and do whatever you like. And the interesting thing is, this is almost the same as the way this passage ends, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so instead of the word right, it's the word good, but it's just a a stylistic change. In other words, in his mouth is, go do whatever is right in your own eyes. 
So this man, in supposedly acting for to protect somebody, is actually acting for his own honor, the own honor of his hospitality, and is just putting the same words out there to say, do whatever is right in your own eyes. He's participating in the wickedness himself. And he's acknowledging that they are going to do this wickedness, that this is what they have become. And, of course, the Levite, realizing that they're rejecting the offer of two for one, right, and fearing for his life to save his own skin, he grabs hold of his wife, throws her out the door. Can you imagine what that would feel like if you were somebody's wife and there were men surrounding the house and he takes you and he throws you out the door like a piece of meat hoping the dogs will go for the meat and you can run off? And the fear and the agony of being that door being shut and these men taking hold of you it's just made me cry again and again. <laughs> what happened that night? And he didn't care about her. Didn't protect her. Didn't defend her. He didn't do anything. And it's interesting because one of the things that was done in Israel is the Levites had cities, and six of the cities were the cities of refuge. So the Levites were associated with that originally. The Levite city is the place of refuge, the place where you can get protection. They're the guardians of morality in Israel. They're the guardians of justice and righteousness in Israel. What has Israel become? What are they? And then we read in verse 26 after they knew her and abused her all night, they let her go. They sent her away. Verse 26 says, The morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. Her Lord, her protector. He was safe inside. She was exposed to the danger. (laughs) Almost, if the text could, it would say, Her Lord. Yeah. Yeah, he was really her Lord. He was really her master. We won't use the word husband at this point. And everything's inverted. Daylight is supposed to be the time of salvation and hope and relief and refreshment. But daylight at this time is the exposure of the terror that was hidden until now. She apparently had no strength to call out, no strength to open the door, even let them know she was there. And the way it describes his getting up in verse 27, and her master rose up in the morning. The ordinariness of it is chilling. He got up, apparently slept all night, had a good night's sleep. Maybe they drank a little more after she went out. It's the feel. And he opened the door not to find out what happened to her, but to went out to go on his way. No regard for what happened to her. No concern as to what happened to her. 
Woke up in the morning, got to be on my way, got to leave. And then the indication, behold, the Hebrew word, probably at this point, the idea is you're watching from above, and at this point, you're inside the head of the Levite as he himself discovers, but wait, whoa, something in the way. Oh, it's her. That's the feel. His surprise that she's there. She is called the woman in verse 26, as though for the first time she's named apart from the men whose care and protection she relied on. It points to her isolation and her vulnerability, her being abandoned. This master who should have cared for her and protected her uh, did nothing for her. He's in the place of safety. He slept. She's in the place of suffering. And so here's the unexpected obstacle, this impediment to his departure. You know, all along we've been wondering, is he going to speak to her? Is he going to be kind to her? Is he going to speak to her heart? Oh, he finally speaks to her. Finally says something to her. Get up. Let's go. Two words in Hebrew. And as you see, there was no answer. So he just put her on the donkey, rose up and went away to his home. But the most touching, the most poignant, the most... In fact, it's like a zoom lens that just drags you to it and you have this picture that you can't leave. It says in verse 27, with her hands on the threshold. Think how purposely he said that. Hands were there on the threshold. Reaching out, holding on, hoping to be saved, hoping to be rescued. It's kind of like marks on the inside of a gas chamber, you know. Or like marks on the inside of a nightclub which has been burned and people trying to get out of it. You see those marks, you'd never forget it. That's what he's doing here. Hands were on the threshold. Excruciating vision as one has said. And the narrator's perspective is most obvious here. How heinous he thinks this whole thing is. How horribly she has been treated. And the thing is, we at this point are seeing her hands at the same time his because at this point we're kind of seeing it through his eyes and we see her hands on the threshold, and we're horrified, and we're just dumbfounded, we're shocked. And he has no reaction at all. So you're brought to this point of emotional reaction, and it, it makes you completely appalled at the way he reacts to it, and the way you've been brought to react to it. He takes her home, divides her up. The same word of seizing her in verse 29 is, is the word used when he sees her to throw her outside. And the same word to send her out is the same word that is used when the, the mob got th- uh, through with her and sent her away. And so the 
narrator is trying to show that both are violent acts against her. Same kind of attitude toward her in both regards. The actions belong in the same category. That in effect, he's repeating their crime, seizing her, violating her body, and sending her away. Later, Saul would divide up oxen this way to gather Israel. Later, in 1 Kings 11, verse 30, a human garment is cut up to be sent away. But you can read in a certain uh, one particular account of a pagan king who describes what I ought to do is take a prisoner and divide him up and send him around and gather people for military. It's a further indication of the absolute paganism of this action. He rips her up as though she's an animal or a garment. This human being entrusted to his care, so he continues to brutalize and dehumanize her. It's the ultimate final violation of her personhood. She's denied the dignity even of a burial. And the indication is when when Sisera fell, same word used earlier in Judges, when Sisera fell, it says he was dead, he died. Here it says she fell, and we don't know if she's really dead or not. And the indication is he didn't really care if she's dead or not. Because she would suit his purposes either way. The indication, even the way he describes it in the next chapter, is you don't know when she actually died. Maybe he murdered her in his action. That's left up for us to wonder. Barry Webb says, he would not care what the answer was, whether she was dead or alive. He had no further use of her as a person, only as an object to inspire horror and bend others to his will. She's then the second woman sacrificed. Jephthah's daughter was the first in Judges. And later, when the people are gathered in chapter 20 and he describes the event, he the self-centeredness, the, the me, uh, it should say, he should have just written, they surrounded the house, but it, it, it's put in an awkward grammar. They surrounded against me the house. So he becomes the center of attention, and he paints it in this way that I barely escaped with my life, but they caught my concubine and killed her. No mention of how she got killed. No mention of his participation. No mention of their desire for him. And he omits his own participation. He shared in it. He was Judas betraying his wife to them. At least Judas recognizes betrayal. This guy apparently recognizes nothing or won't admit it as well. He wouldn't protect her, but now he suddenly wants to avenge her. It's like someone who trespasses your property and steals something from you and they trip in the process and then they come back and want to sue you. That's how bizarre this is. How can he even speak of outrage? He didn't even care what had happened to her. What was right in his own eyes was to protect his skin. Now he just wants to get back at the Benjamites, not because of what they did to her, because he didn't care He didn't like the way they treated him. 
He didn't like the way they scared him. He didn't like to be threatened like that. And so everything is evil. Everything is evil. So, let us pray. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) One thing that uh, I love the way Ralph Davis put this, he said, the problem in our lives is not sins, plural, it's sin, singular. The sin of doing what's right in my eyes. That's that's the essence of sin. That's the essence of all sin. I will be God and I will call the shots in my life. That's, that's what we're claiming. Because only God has the right. Only God has the authority. Only God can command human beings as to how they're to live. Only God can do that. You cannot. You must not do that for yourself. You must not carve out and say, here's my little list of what I will and will not do in my life. Because then you're claiming to be God. Then you're saying, I will do what's right in my eyes. Or we're submitting to his word. We're submitting to his revelation. We're embracing it and exploring it and delighting in it and trying to make it a part of our lives so that its gracious influence will, will be a, a wonderful aroma in our lives. So we will conform our ways to it. And so the gospel has as its objective, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. That's the whole point, you see. It's releasing me from this commitment to myself. And the description in 1 Corinthians 13 of love, that it does not seek its own amidst It's being patient and kind and many other things. That's the essence. Love doesn't seek its own. And this is so grievous and so wicked uh, to God because what's right in His eyes is sacrificial love for one another. And that's what He's demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And why Jesus can say, here's the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And so to do something right in my eyes means that I'm not sacrificing myself for the other's benefit, but I'm using them for my benefit. I'm sacrificing you for me, ignoring you, neglecting you, and using you because I'm doing what's right in my own eyes. We're uniformly... What is right in the eyes of the Lord is to conform us to Him as He's revealed Himself in Christ, giving ourselves up for the good of others. Husbands in Ephesians 5, laying down their lives for their wife as Christ the church. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, forgiving each other as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Having the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 So that we are not looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. That we are doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but we're counting one another as more important than ourselves. Or we're doing what's right in our own eyes. So that husbands are carving out the big 
here's what I want and I demand. And there's a few leftovers that I might do this, I might do that, but probably won't. And I'll do it if I want to, as I want to, when I want to. Instead of, I am here committing myself to your good. I'm not going to do what's right in my own eyes to protect myself, to promote myself, and my own comfort, my own well-being. I'm laying down myself for your good. And she's saying the same thing to him. I will meet your needs not as I want to meet them or when I want to meet them or as I want to meet them. I'm going to meet your needs as you need it. <laughs> as what will bring happiness in your life. See, this, this horrible thing that happened stretches into every part of our life asking that question. Are we living, doing what is right in our own eyes? Because even in the smallest ways, this thing became this huge, horrible conflagration. When people do what is right in their own eyes, as this passage indicates, though both sexes are dehumanized, women end up the great sufferers of it. And so, Judges starts with Aksa, uh, Caleb's daughter, noble and the wife of Caleb and uh, receiving springs of water, just noble and glorious and wonderful in its family construct. And here's where we end up when people do what is right in their own eyes with this poor concubine. And... This is not, well, I'm, I'm just going to mention this. Husbands, it's not that this passage is teaching how to be a husband, for sure, or what not to be as a husband, of course, ultimately. But nonetheless, just even as an analogy, even as an example, uh, that we are to speak to the heart of our wives. We're to speak in forgiveness and brokenness and humility and tenderness and honor to count them precious and valuable, a privilege to have them, a privilege to know them, a privilege to be with them. And how we can, instead of acting this way and acting in forgiveness and brokenness, can lay lay layers of hurt and harm even to the point where she tries to take the blame. She absorbs it. She tries to fix it. She may try to fight back and withdraw and endures it. And we actually dismember her emotionally and psychologically and socially and spiritually. And how many women can end up in a way, figuratively, metaphorically, you know, prostrate, seeking that which they'll never get. But the real... Uh, wonderful truth of the gospel is that Christ so changes us, so affects us by his love and sacrifice. He fills us and completes us and brings about shalom. He brings about wholeness so that we begin to spill our banks. Little streams of clean, fresh life start refreshing others, kindness and forgiveness and other centeredness so that we're not dictated by our own feelings and preferences and desires We're given up to this glad servanthood that Christ has called us to. We're not in a protective navigation anymore, but we're given up to Him. And finally, just a word about Christ Himself. You know, we were threatened ourselves, but 
in our case, we really were the adulterers. We really had hoard after the world. We really deserved the punishment that was coming to us. And it wasn't a mob of wicked people. It was the righteous justice of God. Rightly should have condemned us and had us. And Christ, our true Lord, our true husband, stepped out. And he bore that wrath and he bore that condemnation on our behalf. He's the true husband. He's the one who comes and rescues us from the dragon. We were in the foes of the enemy, Satan, and he comes at the sacrifice of his own life, at the bearing the very wrath of God in order to release us, in order to have us for his bride. He says in John 10, the hireling uh, for the sheep runs when the wolf comes. He runs to protect himself because he doesn't really care about the sheep. He said, but I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. I know the sheep. I love the sheep. And I die for the sheep. That's our Lord Jesus. So he can say in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And probably an indication that I go to the cross to prepare a place for you. And I will receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be. We'll be together forever. You're my precious bride. I sacrifice everything so that you and I will be together forever. What a contrast between our glorious husband and savior and king who suffered the loss and decimation of his own body. As Hebrew says, outside the camp like a piece of garbage to bear away the wrath of God so that we could be safe in the shelter of God's love forever, so that we could receive eternal home with God, eternally valued and beloved and sheltered and protected. Let's worship Him. That's why He's worthy to do His will and not our own. He's a Savior you can trust. He's a King you can put yourself into and say, Lord... Let me do your will for my life and not my will. Let me do your will and not my will. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we're devastated by this tragic account of what your people can sink to. And we recognize, Lord, that we are not apart from this, but we are a part of it. We share in doing what is right in our own eyes. And one time we totally did what was right in our own eyes. We had refused you. We were living completely for ourselves apart from your will. Even now, Lord, as you've reclaimed us for yourself and bought us, we still struggle. We still fight. We still fight to submit to your will, to entrust ourselves to your grace and goodness. We thank you that you have laid hold of us and you will not abandon us. You will not let us go. You will continue to work in our lives to enable us to trust you, to enable us to put ourselves in your hands and to do your will. Oh, Lord, save us from ourselves. Save us from our blindness. Save us from bowing down to desire. Save us, oh, Lord. You're our only deliverer. We are weak. 
You have all power. Lord, we can't even trust you apart from your grace. We ask you, give us faith. Enable us to see your goodness and greatness, and to delight, delight in you, to see your beauty. Oh, Lord, save us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. A pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?